Welcome to the For the Win podcast. I'm Ted Berg. Hemel Javeri, our normal Friday co-host, is on vacation. So filling in, I'm happy to bring on the eminently reasonable Charles Curtis, also from For the Win. Charles, how are you? I'm good. I'm not, I'm not reasonable today. Let's get crazy. Let's do this. It's true. And I should say this is the second time we're recording this intro because we had a little bit of technical difficulties. And I don't <laughs> want to reprise too much of that conversation, uh, even though it will exist nowhere online. But as I pointed out last time around, typically you ask the best questions. So, so this week we're handcuffed a little bit. Well, I appreciate that, and uh, yeah, we, we had a long discussion about how awesome I was, and I'm really sad that we lost that, but uh, we can leave it at that. All right, uh, let's get into it. The, the first question comes from our coworker, Maggie Hendricks, who wants to know, if you could take batting practice at any major league stadium, which one would it be? This is a really easy one for me, because I, I'm, I'm decently athletic, I, I've played softball, I've hit a, you know, a baseball, whatever, uh, but I'm not that great at it. Um, I've never hit a home run in my life. I'm also really slow. So in softball where you like if you hit a, a ball over somebody's head, you need to be kind of fast to get around the bases. I've hit like a triple and then I turn the bases just because I really want that home run and I've gotten thrown out the plate easily. So if I want to hit a home run, where's the easiest place to do it? Fenway, the monster. It's right there. Um, and I don't think I could hit it just willy nilly right now, like off, you know, hanging up with you and then and then going to Fenway and hitting it. I need some training. I need some like swing plane stuff. I need some like workouts that would help me hit a home run better and then I could hit one over the over the monster and that is that is my answer it is it is a slam dunk easy one for me I don't think there's anywhere else I'd want to hit it I was thinking about Colorado for the air but I I still don't I I want somewhere I can hit a home run because let's face it it's everybody's dream to hit one over the wall in in their lifetime yeah so now I came to this from very similar reason as very similar reasoning as you do obviously I'm in it for the home run uh, but I too, I'm just like I am. I can hit the ball hard. I am an up the middle hitter all the way. So hitting a home run in a major league park is probably out for me. Um, but I know, like I feel confident I could hit a ball 310 feet sometimes, and and like I I could probably do that now. Um, and so for me, I would actually say, and it's a horrible park from what I understand. I mean, it's it's. Uh, it's one of two I haven't been to, uh, but I would like to take batting practice at Tropicana Field because it has uh, its left field corner. And again, I'm not a pull hitter, but I think I could adjust across the course of a batting practice and start pulling the ball um, because I can, like, if I really focus on it, I can pull the ball. Uh, so Tropicana Field has that little cutout in left field that I always oh, yeah. think about. No one, no one calls it this, but to me, it's always just Longoria's corner because he hit the big home run in game 163 that, that went right down that line. And there's like this weird little cutout in the fence where it's really shallow and a really low wall. And I think it's 315 feet away. I think I could get that. And so that's, that's the spot for me, even though it's probably like the least, uh, aesthetically nice place to take batting practice i think i gotta go there there or uh i would say maybe also minute Maid park in houston is is pretty favorable to right-handed hitters i don't think uh, so i especially i don't really elevate the ball very well and like i'm a line drive guy all the way and so i don't think i could ever really get the type of height to put one over the monster yeah that, that is the inherent problem right but i think that like if 
you got to train me for it. That's what it is, right? I'd have to get a swing instructor to be like, okay, so see how you're swinging the ball? Okay, the bat, okay. Like, try it this way and try really hitting a high pot with all your might, and maybe you'll get one over the wall. I mean, how far away is the monster? Is it? Is it uh, three? It's, three no, fift- it's, it's 315, 315 down the line, and then it gets it – gets, yeah. but it gets deeper pretty quickly. Oh, yeah, so maybe not. Yeah, and, and the thing is, right, like – Yankee Stadium has the porch, but that's for lefties. Yeah. So, like, that's well, I mean, out. if I were a lefty, it would be a no-doubter Yankee Stadium. Yes, absolutely. And I love that we're talking about this. I mean, remember, the question isn't where would you want to hit a home run. It's the question of where would you want to take batting practice. So that brings into play, like, what's a cool stadium that I might just want to take batting practice at even if I don't want to hit a home run? And I'm thinking about, like, San Diego because that kind of looks kind of cool. Or Pittsburgh. It has that, like, kind of view of the rivers. I, I'm, I'm just sort of spitballing here with, with that. But... Um, obviously, City Field would be one that I've you know been to many many times as a Mets fan, and also have covered you know games st- standing on the field. But yeah, uh, I'm trying to go like the most aesthetically pleasing. Wow, I I totally hit there. I mean, I guess maybe the old Yankee Stadium for the history of it, and to be able to walk out through that that um, the the place where you can touch the sign that says that I want to thank the good Lord for making me a Yankee. Um, so maybe that, but, th- but that goes against everything as a Mets fan. So that's out. Yeah, that's that's my sort of ranging thoughts on that matter. So I spend a whole lot of time working on my swing, not not really with swing coaches, but just like I, I'm at the batting cage probably on average twice a week, and then I play baseball on Saturdays because uh, going to the batting cage, as I've discussed on this podcast before, is basically my favorite thing to do. Uh, it's like weirdly meditative and also really satisfying and a pretty good workout. Uh, so I and like a swing I feel like is the type of thing that and and I think major league players who are obviously far 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 better than me at hitting would say this too too you're kind of constantly working on things you know like so over the course of several months I think I might make like six or seven different little changes in my swing and it always kind of works out the same I think there's probably like a max level I'm going to hit, and I don't know that I will, I don't think there's anything you could do that would make me start hitting 400-foot home runs. Like, I think I could train for a year, and I don't think it would matter. Yeah, you're probably right. I mean, I feel a way about um, driving ranges that you do about um, about, uh, batting cages, because I just love, you know, smacking a ball and watching it fly and, you know, kind of doing things right and, you know, when you can't really do it right on the course um, in general. But, yeah, uh, see, I think with with golf you could train somebody to maybe hit 300 um, on a drive. But, yeah, it's it's totally different with baseball. Totally agree. Uh, I also wonder, and this is something we we talked about uh, back in the day at For the Win, uh, a a past uh, video guy we had wanted to set up this video, and we never did it. But we wanted to figure out what would be the best ball to hit. So say you're given like a, a good one of those like now illegal college aluminum bats that are like 33 inches long and, and 28 ounces and, and spring loaded so you could hit the crap out of the ball. What would be the best ball to be hitting if you were hoping to hit home runs? Golf ball. You think 100%. a golf ball? So, but do you Absolutely. think do you think you could square it up enough with such a tiny ball? that you could do that. Yeah, I think so. I think if you took a few swings, I mean, I think a, 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 it's lighter and also the fact that it co- sort of like bounces. You know, you, when you yeah. see a golfer being hit, it gets smushed and then it, the, upon impact, it, it releases. And it, it's just, it's built for that. And I think, you know, if you see the way that a golf ball like bounces on hard surfaces, you can see how much uh, flexibility, I guess, it would be. Um, it has. 
and I think that that it's it's a no doubter for me with a golf ball. Do you do you disagree with that? Uh, no, I think you're probably right. The other one I thought about, and like I don't I don't know the physics of this, so I might be just plain wrong. Like a a baseball might be better, but a lacrosse ball because it's kind of the same weight oh, as a yeah. baseball, but it's it's rubber. It feels like it would fly further off the bat. So that was the other one uh, that I considered. We we were talking about like doing a video where I go take batting practice and see which balls I can hit the furthest. But uh, in consider- in trying to figure it out, I-, I thought that probably my best shot would be with a lacrosse ball because while I feel like, yeah, like a golf ball would definitely travel further if I hit the crap out of it, I think I'm more likely to hit the crap out of a slightly larger ball. All right. I, I think that's a, a very interesting angle on it. And I think you're right about a lacrosse ball because of uh, the way that it, that it bounces. I was also thinking cricket for a hot second there, and then I was like, no, wait, that doesn't make any sense. I don't know anything yeah, about the cricket hard. ball. Well, I don't even oh, know. Oh, yeah, it's, 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 yeah, no, it's definitely not. It's out. It doesn't, it doesn't, you know, expand and contract. I mean, tennis ball is the same thing, but it's lighter, so. Yeah, no. I think a tennis ball, you could probably get, like, the, the most immediate exit velocity or something, but it would just slow down so quickly because, plus I think also you crush the tennis ball to some extent when you hit it, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, and I again, like I'm not, I'm not a physicist, so I don't really know. But I'm, you aren't, oh man, yeah, too bad. it's it's too bad. I think that would be cool. Um, I didn't, I didn't do well in science in school. It wasn't my thing. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it now you're now you're good at math probably because of baseball. So you know, I'm good at baseball math. Like I can figure out, I can guesstimate someone's on base percentage by looking at their batting average and their number of walks, but. Uh, I'm not great at like uh, when when you get like serious and like a lot of there are a lot of really good baseball writers on the internet who are really good at math and they're like oh we did a regression analysis of this and this and this and it's like okay I I gotta skip to the conclusions now because this part's gonna go right over my head exactly yeah and that's always that's always fun to to read those because I go okay uh, I, I trust your science I trust your math like I I'm cool let's 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 read the conclusion. Uh, Citar at Citar, Michael Donato wants to know. So he he, you said you would take parenting questions. He likes to ask Harry Potter questions because he knows I have never read or seen, or never read a Harry Potter book or seen a Harry Potter movie. Um, and I have. It's a complicated thing, but he wants to know. At what age should you start reading Harry Potter to your kids? And I'm legit curious about this because it strikes me that while babies probably enjoy being read to, it doesn't – does it really matter what you're reading to like a a baby? So, all right. I have a great answer for this because I have experience both from my perspective. I've read the books, seen the movies, um, and I have actually experienced this with my cousin's kid. Um, my cousin, uh, has a, I think he's in third grade now. Is he going to the third grade or fourth grade now? See, I'm like, I'm like really excited. I'm going to send the podcast over and be like, Hey, I gave a shout out to Alex. But I think Alex is now in four. I want to say third or fourth grade. Anyway, the point of this is, is years ago, or maybe it was a, a year ago or two years ago. She said, Oh, he, he picked up Harry Potter. He loves to read. He picked up Harry Potter. And I said, that seems fine for the first two books. And then the third and fourth books get kind of, and no spoilers, they get really dark really dark with some stuff that I know that at at a certain age, maybe like seven or eight or nine, even I would have been a little too, a little too innocent for them. Mm -hmm. Um, and it turned out, and you know, again, if if you're listening to this podcast to my cousins, like, sorry if I got this wrong, the facts wrong, but I believe he read the third book and got nightmares at the age of eight. I want to say maybe in seven. And so I think that's just a little smidge early. So I think maybe like 10, 11, 12, 
might be the, the age range there. And that's that's where I think I'm going to go with my son, who's three. And there's no way we're reading um, we're reading Harry Potter anytime soon. It's just it's too much. Also, it's very wordy. And a three year old likes a short little story that, you know, has a beginning, middle and an end. Um, at least mine does, uh, you know, a little little, you know, uh, what do they call it? Narrative books, I guess you'd call them. Right. Um, you know, like the where the wild things are might be one. We don't read that, but like that might be one. Um, Wait, what is that by rule? You don't read that, or or is that just no, by no, chance? no? Okay, no, that's just by chance. Because that was like my number kid. one when I was a little kid. Right. I don't think we've introduced that into the into our. We have like you know, I don't know, ten books that we read in a cycle with whatever he picks out, and sometimes he gets hooked on on three books that he just wants to read for three weeks straight. Um, so we haven't introduced that one yet, but at some point we might, you know, it's, it's, okay. it's, it's in the running. But now let me ask, what did you read to him? Did you read to him when he was like eight months old? Yes. This was a funny thing that happened when, when, um, my son Benji was born. I asked my friends who had kids and I was like, what do you do with a three month old to entertain them? And they were like, nothing. I was like, well, I got to do something, right? Like, you know, I don't know. You know, they, they talk all about like, oh, the brain, you know, they, they got to, you know, activate the brain, make them used to reading because reading is so good for, for a kid's brain. And eventually what I started doing is reading to him, um, even though it was, and I told him stories too. I actually did a How I Met Your Mother kind of thing one night when he was like wired and didn't want to go to sleep. And I figured my low rumbly voice would help him maybe calm down and go to sleep. I don't think it did. But um yeah, I read to him just like, uh, you know, random stuff, occasionally stuff from magazines, um, mostly like kids books that were like really simple stuff. And uh, and then eventually, you know, he got used to kind of the cadence of reading and it actually helped him with our like nighttime routine before he went to bed that like he knew that like, all right, he could read a couple books and then off he'd go to bed. So that, you know, that's a funny thing you asked there because I know, you know, it's, it's pretty. But you were still, you were so, because I would be tempted to just like, like this morning, I read this super complicated article in the New Yorker about, you know, Trump's business dealings in Kazakhstan, right? But if it's a, if it's an infant, if the kid doesn't understand what you're saying anyway, like, and I want to read that, why can't I just read to my kid about what the Trump corporation has done in, you know, starting a resort in Georgia or whatever? You absolutely can. There is nothing that says you can't, um, it, it, and it's 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 it'll be fun for you. Because um, yeah, because at that age, the kids are just starting to get used to the sort of the cadence of the English language or whatever language you're you're, you're speaking to it, um, and they're getting used to the idea that there are like words and things like that. So yeah, of course you could absolutely read from the New Yorker, and and I encourage that because you know that's always great. Um, and you mentioned that by the way, this is hilarious. My kid is obsessed with trains, and there was a cover recently of. The um, <laughs> there's a train from hell basically. It, it's a subway train that has an H on it, and it's it's driven by the devil. And he picked it up, and he was like, "Oh, it's the H train." Like it was a train line. He's like, "And the people are sad, but when the Q train comes, they're going to be happy." And it was the like, <laughs> he's right. The, the most, Q train's great. It is one. He's absolutely right, and he rides it every week, so he loves it. Um, but yeah, that was a moment of I was like, "Oh man, this kid, hilarious." See, I think so. I'm trying to think back about like what books. Like, if any books made me scared or, or, like, anything like that when I was a kid. And it was, like, so I I sort of, like, went through the – and I, this, is, I, this is not a humble brag. This is just a straight-up brag, I guess. But I was reading, like, fairly advanced books at a fairly young age. When I, when I was, like, in, probably in, like, first grade, I powered through. I loved the, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe series. And I remember there being aspects of that that were sort of scary to me. But very soon after that, 
Um, so I, it started because I read the book, the Kinsella book, Shoeless Joe, which was the basis for Field of Dreams, because uh. I was so into baseball, and I was like a, a good reader, so I sort of struggled through it, but then once that happened, I was like, oh, I'm so smart, now I read adult books, and just switched and like started reading like Michael Crichton books in third grade or whatever, and, and the only thing I remember... Like, my parents saying no to were the ones that were racy. Like, I was halfway through Rising Sun, and I was probably <laughs> 10 years old, and they are like, ah, our friends said you shouldn't be reading this book, and they took it away from me. Um, but but I don't remember, so, like, I always had, I guess it was always visual things scared me, because I can remember being, like, really, really affected by seeing The Omen at a young age and, and different, like, scary movies. But I don't remember ever having a book be too scary for me. Yeah, same here. And and you mentioned Michael Crichton. That was the one, as soon as you said, you know, I started reading books at, at an early age. Yeah, me too. I read his whole, everything that he wrote, I think from ages 10 to 12, or maybe even a little bit earlier than that, which is hilarious because, yeah, there's some stuff in Rising Sun, in Disclosure. In Jurassic in, Park. I mean, I in remember Jurassic Park, in Jurassic yeah. Park, they talk about, like, people's uh, intestines spilling out of their body and stuff. Yes. Yes. He's such a great writer. Um, and I read, like, John Cook, which is, like, um, medical mystery, medical, you know, drama. Um, a little bit of John Grisham, too. You know, I, was, I guess I'm devouring all the, 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 the paperbacks that I could get. Yeah, know. I remember because I did the same thing with John Grisham, but that was, like, sixth grade, which is a hilarious time for anyone to care about John Grisham books. But it was, like, <laughs> The Firm came out, and it was, like, such a big thing, and all my teachers were reading it. And I was like, I want to read that book. And then I read that book. And then I read, like... Again, like in middle school, I was just reading all the John Grissom books, which is not the target audience. And I don't know why I found them enjoyable. I guess because they're like page turners. They totally are. And, and um, so getting back to sort of the, the scary stuff, all of my friends, and I remembered very distinctly in about fifth grade, would all read, um, oh God, now I'm going to forget it. It's um, Goosebumps by uh, that series. Um, R.L. Stein. R.L. Stein, who, whose son I went to, I'm going to Ted here, I, who went to high school with me. But, like, he, yeah, I was always like, wow, they piled them up on the desk like a contest. Like, it was like, oh, I read, like, 20 Goosebumps. I never touched Goosebumps once, which is funny because I'd watch Are You Afraid of the Dark, great series on, on, on SNCC, the Saturday Night Nickelodeon block. And, you know, that didn't scare me give me nightmares but you know like i just didn't want to touch goosebumps or like my friends who were also sort of reading those books um that we were just talking about Crichton and all that you know they were also starting to read stephen king and i was like nope can't do it like i i think i drew the line there you know especially when you see like commercials for the tv movie of it you're like nope can't nope not doing it can't do it i kind of regret that i maybe should turn back to that at some point as an older person uh i'm trying to think of other books that scared me now not just as a kid but in adulthood uh i read a short story and i I can't remember i can't remember i think it came from a uh uh what's the name of the the director it came from an alfred hitchcock book but i don't know i don't know that hitchcock wrote it i think it might have been like a compendium of short stories that that were called stories that scared even me um I I believe that was the name of it. Like I, this is so. But I think there was a story in that one about a guy who tries to plot his escape from jail, and the the 
premise of his escape is he he's going he he hooks up with the coroner from the jail and he's going to climb into a casket and get buried and then and then the coroner is going to come back and unbury him and he's going to escape and at the end like the short story twist and like this is Senate giving chills now even like 20 years after having read this uh he lights a match in the in the in the coffin because he's trying to figure out how long he's been in there and he catches the dead body and it's the coroner so he knows Uh. he's in there forever and so that i remember that was like something i was like and i was like i was later in my teenage years when i read that i remember that being really scary and uh the turn of the screw by henry james you ever read that oh yeah that's Mm -hmm. scary that's a scary book yeah, um, I, the only thing that I can think of off the top of my head that was not a book that scared the, the bejesus out of me was I was 11 years old, and I, this is absurd because, you know, like, as an 11-year-old, I think certain things scared me over other things. I saw a preview of The Fugitive with my dad, and I was just like, oh, my God, is mom okay? Like, you know, like, which is just like, <laughs> it sounds absurd now, but I guess I was like, you know, because it's a very real movie, you know, like he finds the, the, the woman who's, you know, his wife is gone right. and, and so on and so forth. And, yeah, so that was the, the of, of all things to take away from that movie. That was my my takeaway from the fugitive. Um, okay, yeah, being scared of the fugitive. I didn't. I did not have that experience. But uh, hey, good movie. Um, next question. Uh, this one comes from uh, at Chak Rabs, or whose name is Shamik, but his his uh, his Twitter handle is Jolly Bengali. and he wants to know what is a better way to travel cross country, a train or a car. I wish we could have like caveats with this because if it's with my three-year-old, then I change my answer easily. Um, but cross-country, I think you do it in a car. Yeah. With yeah. Yeah, with everybody. I think that's just the right answer. I think I I've told you this before because you've talked about when we go down to Tyson's. We're we're up in New York City and we go to down to Tyson's Corner outside of D.C. to um, the USA Today offices occasionally. You're always like, yeah, you should drive, and I'm like, actually, no, I kind of like taking the train because I get to like you know read, relax. I don't have to look at the road. I can kind of like take my time. Um, so that's my take if you're like going sort of a short distance and I say short, you know, in, in scare quotes, cause that's not that, that close, but cross country, you got to do it as a road trip. That's, that's an easy one. Yeah. I think that's a layup for me too. I mean, I, like I said, like you just said, I, I prefer taking a car even relatively short distances. I'm trying to think of like, unless it involves like parking in New York city or driving through New York city, or I guess any sort of trafficy metropolitan area, I am almost always going to take a car over a train. Cause I like having a control and I, I never know when I'm going to get hungry and want to eat. And I don't want to eat the crappy food on the train. I want to stop. If I'm on my way to DC, I want to stop at chaps pit beef and have a delicious pit beef sandwich in Baltimore. And the train's not going to let you do that. So for me, it's about, I like exploring. I like sort of like, you know, just like meandering off the road whenever I'm hungry and finding the best place to eat near there. So for cross country, it would be a no doubter. Oh, there you go. I mean, it, it's too easy and it, it's the fun of it. And I've never done a true cross country trip. You know, I, I, I'm trying to think the farthest I've ever tra- actually, I did travel with my uh, acapella group <clears throat> um, from from uh, Philadelphia down to Florida and up again. Or did we do? Yeah, we did. We we did the, the panhandle. Um, so that was like kind of the, the experience. And of course, like that was the best, you know, traveling in a van with a bunch of dudes, you know, joking around, eating food, um, you know, sleeping in there making fun stops at places, etc. So, you know, like that is the, the absolute way to go. 
Yeah, I did a. I traveled in a van with a bunch of dudes to spring training for spring spring break of my senior year of college, which is a good indicator of how cool we were. That it was like, let's go to Tampa and hang out at spring training baseball games. I think we got in like eight games in six days. We did absolutely nothing else, um, and and it wasn't you know it was just a my roommate's mother's minivan that we drove down in. Uh, but I also did a trip, so I drove. Uh, when I was when I was working in high school and you had the summers off, I drove by myself to to Minneapolis, um, going through. I went through Canada and then up the lower peninsula of Michigan, across the upper peninsula of Michigan, across Wisconsin, and down to Minneapolis. Then met up with my friends there. We drove from Minneapolis to Milwaukee to Chicago to Detroit back to Chicago, to Peoria, Illinois, to St. Louis, to Kansas City, and then all the way back to D.C., then Baltimore, then New York. That's, that's, my, that's my record for, for road trip. That's incredible, yeah. A friend of mine just did, uh, did one with, with sort of the Midwest and, and did a, a bunch of those, and it's like, uh, yeah, I, I, I'm, I just, this is a funny thing, because we grew up in New York, um, or at least having grown up in Manhattan, I got my driver's license late and i sort of regret that now because it's like oh man i could have taken some really awesome road trips in college uh and and you know late high school so you know that i would have loved to have done that one yeah i don't know why it never like it was it was in college when i i think i first got that like instinct to want to go drive and check places out uh when i first had i think when i first had a license probably my parents were scared of me driving too far and maybe i was a little bit afraid of driving too far like i remember one time driving like in deep into Queens from Long Island, and it was for like we were playing in some flag football league, and we drove to like a, a spot uh, which I guess was like just near the the 59th Street Bridge, and I remember thinking like this is far, and if my parents knew I drove this far, I might get in trouble. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, it, it's I would I probably would have gotten those same restrictions in in high school. Uh, who knows? I, you know, but but again, you know, did did not get that chance. Um, Michelle, our coworker Michelle wants to know. What is the and this? This is, pertains to something our other coworker Luke just wrote because Luke is in Iowa for a golf tournament and he was able to visit the Iowa State Fair, which we know about for its uh, incredible selection of fried food, much of which he has recently posted on For the Win. So you should check that out. Uh, some of it looks incredible to me. Michelle wants to know. Michelle Martinelli, our coworker, wants to know what's the best unconventional fried food you've ever had. This I, I wish I had a better answer for this, and I just find it funny because Luke um, was like, "I've never had one of these before," and I just discovered it. And I find it funny because we're all in New York City, and we see um, we have street fairs that that you know run um, the length of, of of an avenue, so you know twenty blocks of, of New York that that come. But remember, Luke has bad taste. Uh, that is, you know, we've discovered that apparently, you know, yeah. the, the guys though the guys enjoying corn in Iowa, so that, that is a good thing. Um, but he but doesn't like I, corn. Well, now you got to listen to him. Apparently, he's had some sweet corn. He might have changed his mind. You, oh, you gotta, good. You know, well, about time. Because that's what I was telling Luke was he's getting the wrong corn. But go on. <laughs> exactly. Now he's getting the corn in corn country. Um, yeah, so I, at some of these street fairs I've seen, you know, they've had the deep fried Oreos. And I love Oreos. And I love deep fried things, as, as any, any uh, person does. And I had deep fried Oreo once. And I was like, I wish I could eat these every day. They're that good. That's the, but it's not that unconventional. And I was sort of annoyed. The, the thing I told Luke was 
I've seen the deep fried butter on a stick and I just want one bite. I don't want to eat the whole thing. I just want one bite just to see what it tastes like because I kind of think it would be amazing. I feel like it would be good because presumably the butter just kind of melts into the fry stuff and how could that be bad, right? Like butter makes everything taste better, so why wouldn't fried batter stuff taste better with a bunch of butter? Um, I, I also really like a deep fried Oreo. I find that most of the deep fried things, um, especially in terms of desserts, I don't know that they're necessarily an upgrade over the thing that you're deep frying and fried dough. Like I think fried dough itself is so incredible that usually I don't want it tarnished by the addition of like a Snickers bar or something. Right. Um, Well, a funnel cake is funnel cake is obviously, you know. An, an incredible dessert, right? Um, and, I mean, the best, I would love the best. Yeah. All of my favorite desserts, I think, are are donuts, which is essentially fried dough, um, and like beignets in in New Orleans is fried dough, and that's my favorite thing. Um, but in terms of things that have been fried un, that are unconventional, um, they weren't battered. But and I've mentioned this before, I really did enjoy deep fried scorpions. Um, they just tasted like exactly like Lay's potato chips, uh, and so they were delicious. And in terms of battered things, so uh, my roommates and I came into a deep fryer in college and did a lot of experimenting. Uh, We (laughs) found that, like, battering and frying pizza bagels, like the little little microwavable pizza bagels that you get, you batter those and fry them, they're pretty good. They're pretty good. I could see that actually because it's dough and it's cheese and that that would be you know amazing. I I think if you fry most things, um, you would you would enjoy them. I, Luke, I I read the the and saw the pictures from, from Iowa. He tried I think some kind of like turkey like a Thanksgiving fried ball and that to me sounds like like hey I would eat that anytime you know. Yeah, I like, like that. Terrible. I like the idea. so I like the like I like the fritter as a delivery system. Um, and so like a, yeah, why not a Thanksgiving fritter? I would be down for that. What else did you fry in college that was crazy? Um, I, I mean, I, I don't remember a lot of it, but we, <laughs> we basically tried frying like everything we had in our kitchen, which meant just like all of the things you might have left over in a college kitchen. So it was like, Hey, let's like ball up this cereal with marshmallows and then fry that and different things like that. A lot of it was unsuccessful. It uh it made our whole house reek of oil for a while. And so that that was really the and and that has been the case with both deep fryers I've owned. It was the smell that actually forced them out of my households both times because you you're not really you really shouldn't be deep frying at home. Yeah, or you know, I mean, I've I've done where you, uh, you know, I, I cook stuff in a wok and my house smells for of, of garlic and ginger and uh, peanut oil or uh, sesame oil for like three days. It's crazy. Yeah, I, I like for my house to smell like garlic most of the time, but I hear that. it's You got to be careful. You got to be careful with the deep fried stuff. Now I do my deep frying actually on the grill. I just, I will put like a Dutch oven on the grill and put, put oil in there so I can do it outside. Um, that's brilliant but mostly it's like things like french fries it's not i don't get that inventive with it uh you you gotta bring back college ted yeah yeah, uh it's probably for the best that he remain in college (laughs) um are you hiring 
Do you know where to post your job to find the best candidates? With ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to 100-plus job sites with just one click. Then their powerful technology efficiently matches the right people to your job better than anyone else. That's why ZipRecruiter is different. Unlike other job sites, ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you. It finds them. In fact, over 80% of jobs posted on ZipRecruiter get a qualified candidate in just 24 hours. No juggling emails or calls to your office. Simply screen, rate, and manage candidates all in one place with ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use dashboard. Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by businesses of all sizes to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. And right now, For the Win listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash For the Win. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash For the Win, all one word. One more time, try it for free. Go to ZipRecruiter.com slash For the Win. A quick one from, and I want to, this is from my man Kevin Baum, a guy I've known since sixth grade, um, who I know listens to the podcast sometimes. So I want to take his question, but I don't really have strong thoughts on this. I suspect you do. Uh, he wants uh, to know, is at Kevin Baum 013, he wants to know, what are your thoughts on using the Oxford comma? Nope. No. No, no. Oxford comma. Get it out. No. And, and should be the, the, is in place of the comma, end of story. Um, I, I, I do see occasional uses of it where it's necessary in a list, otherwise it screws up the sentence properly, but, but no, I, and, and is there, and is there, and, and we can end the sentence that way. That's the end of it. Yeah, I, have, I mean... Yeah. I, Very so strong feelings about this. I had I I guess I don't I don't really care is the most important thing to know and, and because I I always I thought the Oxford comma was just correct for whatever reason that's what my mom taught me when I was younger I didn't know that that wasn't a thing until I started working in media and someone was like well actually AP style is don't use a comma there and I was like all right I won't use a comma there and that was my history with losing the Oxford comma I just I know people get really bent out of shape about it uh, my thing about all sort of grammar rules are like, do you understand what I'm trying to say? And if it's yes, then I don't care how you got there. If there's a split infinitive, if you're ending on a proposition, like whatever. I get that there are rules, and like I try to know the rules, and I think that if you read my writing, you'll see like I'm typically okay grammar-wise, but... I think the most important thing is the meaning and getting the meaning across. And like uh, on a secondary level, like I would rather it be funny than it be grammatically correct, you know. So I will sometimes like knowingly screw up grammar because it makes the the sentence funnier. Um, but for the most part, like it just doesn't matter that much to me. Yeah, grammar. I'm not a stickler either. Um, I, I I say I have strong feelings about the Oxford comma. It's just simply that I just don't. I'm not using it. I'm not into it. I don't need it. I think it's unnecessary. Um, it seems it seems like you know you're 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 doing two things that that when on one is necessary. Um, the only grammar thing that I kind of I don't know. I've trained myself to kind of do is like I don't know what the name of it is. Well, you talk about split infinitives. That's that's always fun though because it, it always looks better than it it's actually supposed to be, right? Um, it's kind of how we talk. Uh, but the one that I, I do is like, if you say like, I, I don't know if I can come up with an example, but it's like, um, when it comes, I don't know. It's the one where you sort of say something and, and you, you, um, you are modifying the wrong, it's a misplaced modifier. I think it is where it's like, you're, you're, oh, you're misplaced modifier. The modifier. Yeah. Uh, That's that... my, what it was. That's the one that I always gets me and I always correct it. Oh, actually, no, I know the one that I get when I watch reality television and I do this a lot. You can ask my wife. Uh, and somebody says I instead of me or me instead of I, like like Charles and I 
and when it's supposed to be Charles and me, I will out loud correct them in mid sentence. And I'm thank God she she's okay with me doing that because I do it a lot. Yeah, my mom did that to me my whole life, and so that's I think so. My mom is a is a is a college reading teacher, so uh, she for my whole life like that's that's where I got that sense of like my I think my natural sense of grammar all came from just like being beaten into me not physically but uh psychologically over the course of my whole life uh but and and the dangling modifier is one that gets like i i think that uh i would i would proudly say that i have never misplaced a modifier in print because that is something that i'm like hyper i mean, it probably happened by accident but i'm hyper aware of that because it screws me up when i'm reading because i I I notice it every time, and I and I and my and it really does not make sense to me when I read. And like I get that sometimes it still makes sense, but like for the most part, I just am. We are programmed to read this way. After before the comma comes the modifier of the thing right after the comma, and so uh, I get screwed up. Like it it jams me up when someone screws that up, and and thus it is no longer clear. And so that is a grammar rule I'm on board with. Yeah, and 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 right. It, it I I it hops me, you know, like when I'm reading, you know, Jarzy and goes, oh, you know, what what's going on there? But yeah, the the uh, and I and me that that screw up. I I just yeah, I'm trained so hard for it that like when I'm watching the challenge on MTV and they always 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 screw it up or like Top Chef occasionally, you know, and of course who like I don't blame them for it because you know it's not always a, a thing you need to know, especially if you you know if you're a chef, you know, you're not gonna like concentrate on misplaced modifiers dangling modifiers or the the use of me and i or when it's appropriate or even the old you know there 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 or you know your i get that but i i'm just we're we're writers we're programmed for it that's that's the only take i have um we recently dove into in our slack into my uh my live journal from 2003 before i (laughs) intended to be a writer and i'm all over the map like it was it's bad if i look back can i make a confession to you Please. I graduated from college as an English major with no knowledge of what even like an adverb was. Wow, see that's I, really interesting. We never learned that stuff. Like and, and like I guess it worked out, right? Like I have a job that pays me to write. Um I never learned. Like I I don't know if they taught us at some point, I just wasn't paying attention because I kind of knew like I knew subject and I knew verb. And, like, I knew that verb was the action word and an adjective is a descriptive word, like the very basics of parts, parts of speech. But I didn't learn anything past that. And, and I didn't know that I didn't learn that. I didn't even know that there was that much stuff to learn until I had to – I was tutoring after I graduated college. And most of the time I tutored for the SATs and I could handle the SATs and I knew the stuff that was on, like, the writing SATs. But I, I got – uh, I got hired to tutor a kid in his freshman English class at a at a Catholic school, and Catholic schools just have like way way higher standards for for teaching grammar and like going by the book than my public schools ever did. And so this kid's freshman English stuff was just like kicking the crap out of me. Like I, I really had to just go home every week after trying to tutor this kid and then go learn the stuff I thought he might have to learn the next week because I didn't know any of it. That's really funny. I, I, I'm I'm with you. I'm surprised you didn't learn it in high school, but I, I understand like not every every high school teaches this. That's where I learned where just even the basics where this, you know, we're talking about misplaced modifier and all that stuff because I ended up taking, I think, the English AP, which is so full of that stuff, and I was so hating it. It was the worst. 
Um, and it just reminds me that like we can still be writers, even though you know we. I don't know if that's a good thing that we we have. No, like we're, this stuff. is maybe we're both horrible writers, and like we are yeah. just cell phoning ourselves right now. I think you're probably right. Um, so. But hey, you know we got jobs, so hey. Um, so it's cool. It's working out at the very least. Uh, maybe not, you know, maybe just by chance, not necessarily by skill, but, uh, you know, the, the check's clear. I'll take it. Um, Adi wants to know, speaking of writers, our, our coworker Adi wants to know, who is your favorite, this is a mean question, because he says, <laughs> in honor of Stephen Matz, who, a uh, Mets pitcher who had a terrible outing last night and has had a series of bad ones, uh, Adi wants to know, who is your favorite terrible Met of all time? I thought about this for a while, actually, because I was going through my head, I tried to do it off the top of my head, because I was like, if it's somebody that I loved irrationally, I would know it automatically. And I think I came up with one, and it's, I still don't feel true to the answer. Um, because like he wasn't my favorite Met of all time or he wasn't even close, but he was a guy I was like really excited by. And then he did the, the Mets thing. You know what the Mets thing is? The Mets thing is inevi- the inevitable conclusion that a player on the Mets will do okay and then go get traded or, or signed. And this is of course a fallacy and, and like, uh, uh, you know, BS for every fan of every team. They always think that the player that is, is bad on their team or not that good on their team does infinitely better on another team and, and so on. But I think this is true with this guy. My pick is Jeremy Burnett's. Jeremy Burnett's was a great Met. I loved, loved Burnett's when they first called him up. Right. Loved him. Right. They call him up. He was great for a season. And then he goes, and I'm staring right now at his, his, his baseball reference page because I was like, I have to make sure that I'm, conf- this is confirmation bias in some way. You know, hits 13 home runs in his rookie season. We're like, woohoo, you know, he's going to be great. And then he ends up in Cleveland. And he's, you know, uh, not that great. And then he goes to Milwaukee where he mashes. And he becomes a super-duper star for, like, uh, you know, and I wouldn't say super-duper star. That's, that's a little much. But he, he becomes a He was a pretty a big star. I mean, 38 home runs in 1998, that's pretty, pretty. And he, you know, knocked in over 100 runs three times there. And then he comes back to the Mets, and he's meh. He's not that good. Goes yeah. to Colorado, starts mashing again. And so I sort of was like the, the dream of Jeremy Burnett's uh, never came through as 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 so as a Mets fan. So I think you know he's he's there. Other guys who are in the running, by the way, and and this is like crazy, but like Lenny Harris, not that bad of a Met, one of the best pinch hitters, the best pinch hitter of all time. Like a guy who I yelled to in, in when he played right field, and he almost threw me the ball. He was so I could see the smile from, from extremely where I was nice dude. Yeah, did you ever get to cover him? Because I was like yelling, I'm like Lenny, throw me a ball, and he he tried to. Or yeah, he, he I don't know me. why I've spoken to Lenny Harris, but I remember coming away yeah. with it being. So, like, I don't, I don't know if he was showed up at spring training somewhere at some point, like, something like that. But I remember being like, Lenny Harris, that's a nice guy. Like, that, a lot of times when you get those, like, veterans who hang around for a really long time just as pinch hitters or whatever, it's that they're bringing more to the table than just what they have in terms of baseball skills. Right, and that makes complete sense. But he wasn't a bad Met, necessarily. I, I have to, to kind of think further about, like, mediocre players who I had irrational love for. But so so maybe you'll you'll jog my memory. I can name I a was, few. I can name a few. Go ahead. So um and and there are different scales of bad. Um first one that came to mind immediately was Derek Bell. Do you remember yes. Derek Bell? <laughs> of 
Of course I remember Derek Carr, um, one of the killer bees. Yeah, so who, who had his boat in the, in the marina, right? And that's what it was. Like, this guy lived on a boat, and I just thought it was the funniest thing. And he showed up, I remember he showed up, I think it was either opening day or the first day of spring training, with, like, two giant fish to feed the whole team that he had caught because he lived on a boat. And I thought that was the funniest thing. He had a dope mustache. Um, and then, of course, following his exit from the Mets, he uh, he enacted Operation Shutdown because he felt like he didn't have to. He shouldn't have to work for a. He shouldn't have to fight for a starting spot uh, after hitting 173 with the Pirates and an injury plagued deer. They said he was fighting for a spot in spring training, so he said it's Operation Shutdown, and they wound up paying him five million dollars to to live on his boat and not play. Uh, which I I like. That's. I don't know. That seemed like a pretty sweet life, like a good for you, Derek Bell. Um, I always liked him. I liked him like when he was when he was good for the Mets and when he was bad for the Mets because he was the guy who lived on a boat. Um, second guy, and this is a far much more random one. Um, in 2003, the Mets called up an outfielder named Jeff Duncan. I, I doubt you remember that. Uh, the name sounds familiar. He played for half of a season, basically, in 2003. Um, but when he came up, it, he so they brought him for like three games in May. I'm looking at his baseball reference page now. Um, they brought him for three games in May. They brought him back in July. And in his first eight starts after he came back in July... Um, in 27, he had 27 at bats and he had 11 walks and he was, you know, he was just getting on base a ton and they had him batting first sometimes. And, you know, he's a young guy and I didn't really know like the system that well. And I was super high on walks in 2003, as many people were, because it was like sort of the first, like first post money ball generation of guys coming through. And I was like, this guy, Jeff Duncan, he's going to be so valuable. He's going to get on base a ton. Uh, turned out not so much. But, man, was I psyched for that guy after, like, eight games. Uh, and then the last one, and I would not I would not call this guy terrible. I would just say he wasn't really as good as he was in my head. Um, but uh, Bobby J. Jones, I believe, yeah, Bobby J. Jones. Oh, yeah. Who was yes. the starting pitcher for a long time. And if you look at the yeah. stats, they're underwhelming. Um, but I – so I happened to catch him – uh, while he was a minor leaguer, back in the day, they used to when they, at, at Hall of Fame inductions, they used to play a game between two of the teams represented by the Hall of Famers, and it was an exhibition game, but it was real major league players. So I saw the Mets and the White Sox play the Hall of Fame game in whatever year Tom Seaver was inducted, I think 1992. Uh, and so against a White Sox lineup that had like George Bell and Steve Sachs and Roger, Robert, Robin Ventura and Frank Thomas, uh, Bobby J. Jones, who was then a, a double-A player in Binghamton, uh, which was nearby and he was being used because you didn't want to burn a pitcher for this exhibition game that they used to play, uh, he threw, I think, six and a third no-hit innings against the White Sox. And so from then, it was like, this guy is my favorite guy. I was so psyched about his, his prospect status. He came up. He was pretty good for a while. I was so psyched about that. So that was like one of my favorite guys. Like Certainly from that era, that was like my dude. Yeah, uh, I think 
I'll I'll throw one out here to you. And and by the way, Bobby J. Jones, I distinctly remember him uh, having a matchup against Pedro Martinez when he was on the Expos, and he beat him, and it was like the greatest game ever. It was it was so great. Well, um, then in two thousand, also uh, he threw a he threw a shutout, a one hit shutout in the in the postseason. Yes. And that was that was his big get day, really. Uh, yeah, and and I you know, and I love that also that Bobby M. Jones came then later right. to the Mets and was you know bad. Here's one more for you, Brett Butler was a bad Met. And Brett Butler was, was one of these players that I was like, I, I always hated to face because he would lay down, and, and, and my dad loves a good bunt. Uh, you know, he, he, he laments the, the fact that there's no more sque- you know, uh, uh, squeezes, you know, um, uh, uh, you know, that, that are, you know, sacrifices anymore um, that, are, that are used in baseball. He wants to see, you know, the suicide squeeze or, you know, the, the safety squeeze. Uh, because I, you know, he likes, and he would always like roll his eyes and, you know, he'll probably be listening to some laughing, but you know, when a pitcher can't bunt, he like would, would just boo the, the television a little bit. Um, How, what does he think about Matt to... Harvey? Follow up question. I feel like <laughs> anyway. Matt Harvey gets a pass for being like literally the worst bunter I've ever seen. He's, he's, I mean, he's you know, so bad he... that sometimes I suspect he's tanking it. So they let him swing, swing away. <laughs> <laughs> but he, he's a decent hitter, right? Isn't he's he? not a, not the worst hitter and he has some power. He is an awful bunter. Oh yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, I, I, I have not. I don't think I've watched him enough as a bunter to, to kind of agree with you here. But, but Brett Butler was just the greatest bunter I've ever seen. Could could throw one down the line, use his speed to get to first, or you know, bunt in any situation for a single. And he came to the Mets, and it was like really exciting because it was like, oh, Brett Butler, that guy that we hated facing all these years, he's now met. And then he he was terrible. And I I, I have to check, but I know that he got traded to the job back to the Dodgers. Um, I believe it was the same day that they were playing the Mets, so all he had to do was change clubhouses, which is always one of my favorite things in, in sports. Oh, yeah. is when, you know, teams are playing each other, and they just go, here, like, walk across. Yeah. To the go over there. Them. Talk to those guys right. now. Exactly. So um, I think that was the case. So that was the uh, the, the end of his, his Mets career. He lasted all of 90 games, which you, is just sad. Do you know about his uh, America's Funniest Home Videos ex- experience? No. So Brett now Butler during it. the height of America's Funniest Home Videos, and if you look it up, uh, Grant Brisby from SB Nation has found it and put it online and wrote about it. Uh, but I remember it from when the show was airing because I was a, it was I was young and it was that show was huge. Remember that show was huge for a while. Oh. Okay. Um, because it was before we had YouTube, right? So like to watch people being hit in the junk with stuff, you had to watch America's Funniest Home Videos. That was the only place you got that. Um, and sure enough, Brett Butler submitted a video of and he's like lobbing a tennis ball to his little kid and the kid's adorable the kid's probably like four years old and the kid just rips a line drive like right into but brett butler's groin and he just <laughs> he like collapses in a heap you can find it it's still on it's on youtube if, it, if it's with it's got the title former major leaguer brett butler gets hit in the nads and <laughs> it is a delightful video it is a delightful oh. video Oh, I, I love that show. Also, mostly because people say that I look like um, uh, like Bob, and, and I, I, do. I see that you got a little bit of a Bob Saget thing going on. Yeah. Yep. Um. All right. Uh. Last one. Uh. I believe last one comes from. Oh. Okay. So this is just. I'm only asking this one because I researched it a little bit. Because. Um. So last night in the Subway Series game between the Mets and the Yankees. The first two Major League Baseball players named Chasen 
Chasen Shreve of the Yankees and Chasen Bradford of the Mets faced each other. They both got at-bats, although Chasen Shreve's at-bat was not against Chasen Bradford, uh, sadly. But it was a chasing-on-chasing matchup in in Major League Baseball, uh, decidedly the first one ever, since these are the first two chasings. And Ross Bernhardt, at Ross underscore Bernhardt, wants to know, after last night's chasing bowl, what other matchup between players with the same name could possibly give us the same adrenaline rush? I assume he's kidding, uh, but I have done a little bit of, I've looked at some stats about this. I think you should take the reins on this because right. I, I, if you did the research, like I got, I got to defer. So the, because this is something that that I stumbled upon a few years ago, uh, the the Giants had an infield. They had three guys named Brandon in their infield, and it turned out I looked it up. It turned out there were no Brandons in Major League Baseball history before the year two thousand. Um, hmm. which which as a child born in nineteen eighty one blew my mind because and you're around the same age as me right like we i went to school with a dozen dudes named brandon because brandon was a super popular name in the late 70s and early 80s um and that's why by the time 2000 came around there were some baseball playing brandons but brandon was not really a popular name before that era and so there were no brandons uh in the major leagues uh chase utley who debuted in 2003 was the first mlb player named chase um, now there are like a dozen active chases in the major leagues. Uh, before um, 1996, there were only two guys named Justin in major league history, both of whom played in the 1930s, one of whom went by Judd. Um, and then in 1996, we got tons and tons of Justins. Um, there was only one Jason before 1989 when Jason Grimsley debuted, then the mid-90s, Giambi, Isringhausen, Varitek, Schmidt, Jason Kendall, there was just an explosion of guys named Jason. Um, so I've been now kind of looking at the reverse of this. This is going to blow your mind. Are you ready for this stat? I'm totally ready. I'm very excited about this. There has been no one in the major leagues this season named Bob or Bobby. See that that doesn't blow my mind that much because nobody's going by Bob or Bobby anymore. They're, like so that's, that's Bobby a, that's Parnell, Bobby Parnell, and Bobby Wilson are both active in AAA. They both played last year. They were the last two Bobbies. Um, it's been years since we've had a Bob. That's that is still yeah. All right, I, that just, there's no crazy. one, no one, no one named Bobby. That's sort of weird, isn't it? Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, if George Springer were to face George Contos, they've never faced each other. George Contos, a reliever on the Giants. George Springer is the excellent outfielder on the Houston Astros. That would be the only possible George-on-George matchup in Major League Baseball in 2017. There are literally as many active guys named Chasen as there are named George. Yeah, I mean, that's... That, it's not terribly it, surprising. You don't meet a lot of Georges anymore. But that's like, George right. was like the... I feel like George is like a, like a, sort of like a default common name for so long. Uh, you know, I'm going to throw out here... See, I think you're thinking about it in a funny way about first names. Like, I just want to see, like, really funny... And we this is something we would definitely cover. Oh, yeah, cover like, like yeah. Al, Al Leiter meets Jung Bong. <laughs> right, there you go. Um, oh. <laughs> Right, like, yeah. It's gonna be a second to get that. It's like, oh, that's that's brilliant. You yeah. must have you must have come up that one years ago. That, that was um, like 2003. That was on our college <laughs> TV show. Yeah. 
<laughs> I I'm thinking of like Josh Outman facing like Kyle Lobstein because it's out at the, the guy you know gets outs and the guy who lobs the ball you know I like that that's the only one I can kind of I'm trying to like rack my brain for like weird weird names I mean lighter know? lighter V Bong would have been like that would have blown up the internet if the internet was a th- if Twitter was a Somebody? thing in 2002 or whatever yes I agree that um, that is pretty crazy. Or like even like well the Mets have Josh Smoker so you could probably find some good ones in there. Well, there's um, also Felix PA like you know for food for you know foodies yeah I'm I'm going the clean route I you know I don't know you know, the less less druggy route of course there's like Phil Coke too you know right yeah um, there's a lot of there yeah that's that's true I didn't think I was going with people for the same name um, this is the last fact I have on this and this is and again this probably won't surprise you. Uh, but, but I went deeper into the data because it was something my, my dad had told me about recently that I was curious about. So Gary Sanchez is the only Gary in major league baseball. And I think that maybe there are, there's like one Gary in all the minor leagues as well. There just aren't people named Gary because no one is named Gary anymore. Did you know that? Yeah. yeah, I mean, you're saying these names that definitely sound like well, yeah, but like so people like my, in the 80s and 90s. But you know? don't you like, think? Well, don't you think someone? So look, look at this. This is true. I looked this up last year. Um, so in the in the first of all, until the 1930s, did you know this that Gary was a more popular girl's name than boy's name? It was like several thousand no, that I female Garys a year in That's the fine. in the teens and the 20s. Uh, in the 1950s, the name Gary exploded. There were nearly 40,000 babies a year named Gary for for the bulk of the 1950s. Last year, there were only 442 boys in the United States named Gary. Yeah. That's so few. It just feels like there would be enough Garys dying and having people named after them that there should be more Garys. Yeah, you're probably right about that from, from that perspective. I'll, I'll give you that. It's just like, yeah, when you say like Gary and Bob out loud, it, it sounds like... So that's the matchup uh, I want to see. I want to see <laughs> Gary face Bob. Right, like Bob Wickman could have you know, been... I don't sure, know, you Bob know. Abreu. There you go. Well, Bob, he was a Bobby. Um, you know, but like... Bob and Bob and Gary sounds like a like a variety show in the seventies to me, like automatically. So I think those names are on the way out. But like then we have I don't know what what's a name that's really popular now that I mean uh, I Jackson with an X. There you go. Right, exactly. Someday sure soon we will have two guys named Jackson with an X face each other in a major league baseball game. Exactly, and it'll be it'll be a blast. I'm trying or to think of other like, like Braden no. versus Caden. Uh, yeah, yeah. True. I mean, no judgments, right? I'm just saying right, that's going to happen. That's, yeah. I'm, I'm almost certainly there. There has not yet been a Braden versus Caden matchup in baseball, but in by the year like 2030, there will be a bunch of Braden versus Caden matchups. You're probably right about that. Although we had had a Braden. Well, no, he was last named Dallas Braden. So well, and there's Braden Looper. Oh, true. That's true. Um, but he was a pioneer. That's when when I read these facts about. Guys named Braden in like 2045, um, I will be like, well, there was the one guy who came up in 1999 named Braden Looper, but then there were no other Bradens for a long time. Uh, Braden Looper, uh, mediocre, terrible Met, by the way. Yeah, I, I never was particularly inclined towards him, though. <laughs> Fair enough. All right, uh, this has been good, Charles. I think we we answered a lot of people's important questions today. Yeah, I agree. These were really good questions. Thank you, America. 
you can check out the For the Win podcast on Twitter. Uh, on not not on Twitter. That's the one thing we're not on. Where there's no For the Win podcast on Twitter. It's just For the Win. You can, you can check out Charles on Twitter at by Charles Curtis. I'm on there at OG Ted Berg. Um, and you can check out uh, the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, everywhere else. Rate us, review us. Charles, thank you as always for joining. Uh, thanks for having me. Peace out.